At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Hi, this is Dennis O'Hare, and before we start the political breakfast, just a quick reminder, WABE's top priority is to bring you extensive coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. So we have decided to postpone our spring fund drive. As we face this crisis together, WABE is going to continue to be your source of vital, accurate news. And in these difficult times, your support will keep us going. So please give, if you can, at wabe.org slash donate. Thank you. Welcome to the Georgia Lab. No, not the state's COVID testing lab. We're still working on getting more of those up and running. The entire state is a lab right now, and we are all the subjects. Governor Brian Kemp finds support from state leaders, pushback from others, including President Trump, on his plan to partially reopen the state for business. Speaking of which, business folks and workers and state and local governments struggle to adjust to life amid pandemic. We bid you a warm welcome to The Political Breakfast. Hope you're safe and well. Again, we're joining you from three different locations. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, public affairs and government consultant, and former national southern regional director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Hey, guys. Welcome back. Hope you're doing well. Thanks, Dennis. A lot going on in Georgia. Just a bit. Uh, Wednesday was a wild day, even in an era that's been full of wild days. Republican Governor Brian Kemp gave a round of interviews in which he said he had had great conversations with President Trump and Vice President Pence about his decision to partially reopen some businesses in the state. And then, Right after those interviews, President Trump told the nation, in his words, I strongly disagree with his decision. Brian, the president did add that he must do what he thinks is right, but how big of a political setback is this for the governor? <laughs> I think the visual that comes to mind for me is, you know, Trump just put the governor in a raft and then pushed him out into the ocean <laughs> and said, good luck, good luck. Well, I hope it all goes well for you. Brian Kemp was on an island before Wednesday, before the president said anything, an island in the sense that no other governors had taken the dramatic steps that he had to reopen their economies. And in fact, he had faced some pushback from elected officials in other parts of the country, including people like Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. And then when the president stopped, stepped in, a guy whose word to Republican voters is 
similarly taken in as the red words in the Bible. I mean, whatever he says goes and becomes the new gospel, comes out and says, I disagree with him. And Theron always talks about taking you behind the curtain in Georgia politics as part of our purpose here. Let me take you behind the curtain. I think some of this has been long simmering. I don't know how much of this has to do with the actual policy in place. I mean, the president's been tweeting, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia. I don't know that he is really against what Brian Kemp is doing. I think what this is really about is President Trump had a major breach with Governor Kemp over the Senate appointment. He told the governor he wanted Doug Collins. He said it to him over and over and over again. The governor said, that's not the direction I want to go, and then finally decided on someone else. Um, And at the meeting where the governor introduced him to Kelly Leffler, the president had a very negative reaction to that. Now, since then, I mean, I think his problem with Kelly Leffler has largely gone away. I mean, she has worked really hard to build that relationship. But I think that some of this is, this was Chuck's chance to push back on that and sort of teach a lesson to some degree, I think is how he sees it. So I think that's, that could be part of the undercurrent of why this happened, because I think what Kemp is doing is actually in line with what President Trump has been insinuating, at least, that he thinks governors should be trying. This is terrible for Governor Brian Kemp. He basically got thrown under the bus uh, by President Trump. And what's funny, Dennis, is that I had an opportunity to read a tweet that was sent out by Congressman Doug Collins that basically said, poor Kelly did this to herself. She asked Brian to help her across the political street, and they both got hit by a bus, said the Collins campaign, which then got backed over them and caught fire. To me, that's a perfect explanation of what just happened to Georgia's governor with President Trump. The thing that's so really upsetting about this is that I want to believe, and Brian is right, the thing about this podcast, we want to take you behind the curtain, is that at the time where the president of the United States was urging governments, and governors in particular, to begin a phased process of reopening their state, this governor goes out, and we can get into whether we disagree or agree with it later on, but this governor goes out and begins that process. We all thought that he was doing it to sort of cozy up and appease the president, sort of say, hey, look at the the loyal actions that I'm taking to try to reopen the economy and reopen my state. What I want to know is what transpired between Governor Kemp's announcement earlier in the week to begin the phased approach to reopen Georgia and between him having a phone call with the president and then the president going up to the microphone and basically throwing the governor under the bus. I believe, and I have no evidence to prove this, that there was definitely a lot what Brian just shared with us, still sort of festering because of the pick with Senator Leffler. But also, I think that this was an opportunity for the Collins campaign to really sort of get sort of a a boost in their campaign, because you just look at the, the statement that they made. But ultimately, this is just an embarrassment for us nationally. And I really hate that the governor and the president are doing whatever they're doing to make sure that we are continuing to be the livestock of the nation. Let me follow up on that on two points. And the first one is, 
Brian, I'll start with you. Governor Kemp did a tele-town hall on Wednesday with Senator Kelly Leffler with him. So first of all, from his point of view, Brian, is he sending a message to President Trump right after the president said he told Kemp he disagreed with him? No, I don't think so. I imagine that teletown hall was scheduled long before the conversation with President Trump. It takes a while to sync up a U.S. senator and a governor's schedule to do such a thing. So no, I don't think that they're related at all. And the governor has said that the conversations between him and Trump have been positive and constructive and that the president has expressed some support for what he is doing in their talks. So who knows where the truth lies on that? Only a few people do. But what matters is what's on the public record. And what we have here is a schism between the president and the governor. And it's putting a lot of pressure on the Kemp administration to make sure that this goes well, that we don't have a huge spike, that we don't overload our healthcare system, our hospital capacity, et cetera. There's a lot riding on this because, you know, there's safety in numbers. And uh, Brian Kemp is a party of one right now in this policy. No other governors followed him. And now he is even more isolated because the president has said he disagrees. So there's a, a huge downside for him. If this goes poorly now, it's, he's going to be an easy target. And one problem he faces is that I don't think that he will get the upside credit that he deserves for making a courageous stand for being visionary and taking a risk to get our economy going again. I think if, if things go well, people won't look back and go, thank God Brian Kemp took that leadership role. But let's not rule out the possibility that Brian Kemp may be right. I don't fully get everything. Like the way that he picked the certain businesses, I mean, you can't have a massage, you can't get a tattoo, you can't get a haircut six feet, eight feet away from the person providing that service. So I, that's the part that's a little confusing to me. I would be interested to see how in the world people are supposed to take precautions, not just wearing gloves, wearing masks, et cetera, but also the testing. Governor Kemp has said until people can like test themselves at home in the morning, we're not going to re really be able to contain this. And we can't say that businesses are taking all the precautions because we don't have the testing capacity for people to go into great clips or hair cuttery and do a swab and see if anybody in that room has the virus. You know, that's the part that's confusing, confusing to me, confusing across the board. We don't know how to implement the standards, how to do the precautions, because we don't have the tools to do it. The one thing I would have done different as far as the rollout of this plan, they announced it and then on the back end came out with the guidance for businesses to follow. I think it should have been done concurrently. I think it would have stop some of their early on confusion. But let's all hope that this goes well for the sake of Georgia. Even if you don't like Brian Kemp politically, pull for him on this. Theron, to follow up on the other political part of this whole thing about the president and Governor Kemp and Senator Leffler, has the president perhaps opened a door for weighing in on that Senate race if things don't go well, or if he doesn't like the way that Governor Kemp has responded. If the president weighs in with an endorsement on that race, 
has he just kind of opened the door to give himself the chance to do that in favor of Doug Collins? You know, to sort of piggyback on what Brian just said is that I am going to give Governor Kemp the benefit of doubt here that when he got on that microphone on Monday, that whatever he thought was the right thing to do, he was doing it. What bothers me more than anything, Dennis, is that I really hope that the president of the United States of America is not playing U.S. Senate politics at a time where we're trying to save lives. I find it highly unbelievable that Governor Kemp would go out and say what he said on Monday without any assurance or indication from people in the White House or people in Georgia that have relationships in the White House, that he would go out and make the comments that he made, and more importantly, to Brian's point, to be the first governor to go this far without any sort of type of communications with the White House. The last thing I want to say about this is I knew that the governor was going to have to begin the process of reopening Georgia. That's his responsibility. He's got to begin that process. What I question and what a lot of other people question is clearly there was no communications with other people who were going to be directly impacted and particularly mayors and county officials and others to say, hey, I'm going to make this decision. He didn't have to do that, but it would have been great because that's kind of what he's been doing. But then secondly, it was the businesses that he chose to reopen at a time where we are telling people that you can't go outside, you can't touch anyone, you can't be within six feet, wear a mask, wear gloves. I believe that if you know the governor the way that I know the governor and just know his history, I think it really was a opportunity for him to try to help small businesses and try to get low wage workers back to work. And I hope that that's what went into the process of him choosing these industries. But there are restaurant owners, there are people that I know that own gyms and believe it or not, Dennis and Brian, yes, I do know someone who owns a tattoo company. They're all telling me that they're not going to reopen because they're scared. And you know why they're scared? Is because the last thing that they want is for someone to have COVID-19 and not know that they have it, or maybe that they know that they have it, to come into their establishment to affect their workers, and then to consequently uh, give the virus to people who are coming to the business. And they're just basically setting themselves up for a lawsuit. So lastly, as I close, it just really disturbs me, and I'm trying not to be partisan here, but it really disturbs me that we got two leaders, the leader of the free world and the leader of our state, that can't get their acts together, can't put their differences aside, whatever they may be, and do what's best for this country and do what's best for this state. Because I can tell you this, what they're doing right now, this back and forth throwing each other on the bus or saying that you know, he, he doesn't agree with them and then sort of injecting Senate politics in this is just totally irresponsible. Brian, one of the biggest questions around the state is why did the governor do this when he had evidence before him that we don't have a vaccine, we don't have testing, we don't have contact tracing, we're not even following the president and the administration's own guidelines on how to reopen. And those are just a few of the facts in front of the governor when he made that decision. Are you both saying that one of the reasons why he did this was to impress the president, who had earlier been saying to states, liberate yourselves? No, I really don't, actually. I think, if anything, 
it was more local than that. There was a, a rally planned this week for the state capitol with some conservative groups that were pushing to reopen, just like we've seen in Michigan and other states. And some political commentators were hypothesizing that this was a preemptive measure to keep that rally from happening, where there's going to be this television visual that goes everywhere of the governor's policies being protested by people from his political base. But I think the most persuasive voices in his ear were those from the business community, small business and big business. Now, it was interesting that none of the big chambers of commerce came out and said, hey, yeah, this is great. They stayed on the sidelines, uh, did not weigh in. But I do know that in private conversations from agribusiness to small business, people were in his ear saying we're hurting. We need to reopen and at least give us the freedom to do that. And, you know, Brian Kemp is a small business person who during the Great Recession didn't take a paycheck so he could pay his employees. He's seen what it's like as a small business person. He wants to help these companies save themselves, not blow them up through no fault of their own. Now, it comes with a danger. It comes with a huge downside. But I understand where he's coming from. It could be counterproductive if those businesses end up opening, their employees get sick, and they have to shut down again. That is certainly a danger that we face. And as I said earlier, I don't know how you're going to attach you parlor and accomplish this goal unless you can go in and take a test, which is not what's going to happen. But one of the problems that Kemp faces is that we're not anywhere close to having enough testing to where we can all test ourselves every day. We're not anywhere close to having a really effective trace and contain program in place. We can't go on for months and months like this. The economic damage will be so consequential that it could very much outpace the damage of the virus itself. That's a real possibility. And people who attack Kemp often just ignore that, that there is a danger to the status quo. And look, we don't know what the repercussions of Kemp's order are yet. We don't know. He may be right. We may be able to be smart about this and do, go back to business to some degree without having a super spreader moment. Yeah, I, I know. But, but it, it, we just got to listen. We got to call this what it is, guys. And I'm sorry. And, and people who listen to this podcast know that I am extremely fair to the governor. And let me just put it out here. You know, the governor and I have been texting about other things non-related to this decision. Uh, and, and, and he's a great governor and his staff to work with. Clearly, I'm working with them on the, the census and trying to make sure everyone is counted. But I just got to speak truth to power here, Dennis. And I think that's, you know, I cannot let comments being made sort of overshadow the, the, what I believe is the truth here. The truth is, is that this governor made a decision, came out on Monday, and did not provide us with the data that he said that he was reading that based his decision. He did not share with us the metrics, the model. Remember, he's been critical of this model. He didn't really do a good job of saying, hey, here's the decision I'm making, and this is why. Secondly, there was just not enough, there was some, not enough guidance to the public on how to reopen. And then the last thing that is just so baffling to me is that if you are doing it for small businesses and you were doing it for these particular industries, which I don't think we need to go bowling, I can wait on seeing that movie because I don't really think there's a lot of great movies out right now. I don't want a tattoo. 
I don't need a massage. So he could have just opened restaurants or he could have just opened another sector. He did not have to go with all of these. And then the last thing I want to say is this, and I've said this on this podcast, they got to directly address that this virus is killing black and brown and poor people. Okay. I'm going to repeat that. They've got to address it, not just with lip service. I want to see an African-American doctor. You can get Dr. Ford, who's over in DeKalb County. You can get Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, who's at the Morehouse School of Medicine. I want a black person, like I see on the television with President Trump, with the Surgeon General. Yes, he is black, and his name is Jerome. I want a black person standing with the governor and addressing that this is killing black, brown, and poor people in our state. You mentioned uh, a number of doctors. We have a former Surgeon General, David Satcher, who has been part of Morehouse School of Medicine for a long time. Absolutely. And I definitely was going to mention uh, Dr. David Satcher. I know his son, Daraka Satcher, very well. Those are three competent, qualified doctors. One is a former Surgeon General. I want the governor to specifically lay out a plan because I'm all about small business. I'm a small business owner too, and Lord knows I'm dealing with a lot and having to make a decision. But I want a plan specifically for black, brown, and poor people in this state. He has yet to go far enough to deal with that. Let me tell you, this is another sort of message to the governor in the governor's office. And you know, if he was on this podcast right now, I would feel comfortable telling him this because we have this relationship. At a time where you're in a political crisis right now, where we are in a very, very tribal society politically, it would be smart to start trying to bring people together. Not saying he hasn't been doing it. He has. He's done a good job of it. But you've got to attack this issue that this virus is killing black, brown, and poor people at a higher rate than any other demographic or geographic area uh, in this state. And so, you know, again, I don't want to spend much more time talking about Trump. Trump's an idiot. Uh, what he did to the governor throwing him on the bus was foolish, and I don't like it. And now you've got these people out here in Georgia feeling comfortable enough to send text messages to the, the mayor of Atlanta calling her the N-word. And so that's what we have gotten at a time where I think that this virus is scaring people People don't have any direction. They don't know how to reopen. People want to go back to work. They don't know how. And it's just a crisis that we have in our state right now. All right, real quickly, Theron, just to wrap up the why did he do this mystery, do you agree with Brian that he was primarily thinking about small businesses and that sort of thing? Or do you think, as some folks are suggesting, that he was trying to impress the president who had said earlier to other states, liberate yourselves. I think Governor Kemp definitely in his heart of hearts, and as Brian mentioned, knowing him as a small business owner from Athens, Georgia, who struggled through the recession. And if you talked to him when he first came in as governor, one of the things that he and I had extensive conversations about was trying to figure out how we can make sure that we help small businesses thrive. So absolutely, he did this because he wanted to help small business. He also did this because the president of the United States of America gave him and all the other governors a signal that you can begin a phased approach to reopen your state. 
I find it very hard to believe, Dennis, that he would have gone that far and put in his order these different businesses that could reopen without any type of signal or communications with the White House. Governor Kemp is not trying to get brownie points with President Trump, but I definitely think that he thought he had the political support and the political cover to roll out what he rolled out. And there is much more ahead on the political breakfast, including what Governor Kemp heard from some local officials around the state and the rather abrupt departure of one of the most colorful local leaders in the Atlanta area. That and more when the political breakfast continues. Stay right here. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. And we are back on The Political Breakfast. Thanks for hanging with us. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Now, so far, we've talked a lot about the president's response to Governor Kemp's move to reopen some businesses in the state. Guys, let's move now to some of the local officials. And we heard from mayors, not just Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta, but we heard from mayors in Augusta and in Albany who said they were completely surprised by the governor's move. They thought it was too much too soon. We also heard from Sandy Springs Mayor Rusty Paul, a Republican who had initially asked the governor for a shutdown, but now says the governor now is taking the right approach. So, Brian, I'll start with you. Was this a big political misstep by the governor to not at least give some of these mayors a heads up, especially when, if you remember a few weeks ago, he had asked Mayor Bottoms to delay her shelter-in-place announcement, and she did. It's impossible to have those sort of stakeholder conversations on the front end and maintain a grip on the messaging. Because if he had a conference call with all the mayors in the state, the content of that conversation would leak out to the media or out onto social media during the call. And that would be how it got rolled out. And it would be rolled out without all the information, without all the context, and could be definitely influenced by the perspectives and the stances taken by those who are putting out the information as opposed to the perspective and stance of the governor. So on a practical level, there's no way to have a conversation on the front end and still control the message. So that's something that he has to be aware of anytime he makes these sorts of decisions. The governor has strong relationships with, if not all, a vast majority of the mayors who actually came out and sort of made national comments and local comments about them not being given a heads up. I do think that that was a political misstep. The governor could have called maybe one or two mayors, particularly the mayor who is the mayor of the largest city in your state or the second largest city, which is Augusta, or your staff could have called 15, 30 minutes before the press conference, chief of staff, the chief of staff, communications director, the communications director, and say, hey, FYI, the governor is going to announce this today. The problem with him not doing that, and again, he did not have to do it. It was just a break from the process that the governor received praise from me and others that he had implemented very early on in this COVID-19 crisis. And so, yeah, you want to control the message, but I do think that it was not the level of collaboration 
that could have been done. You still could have a major announcement, but you could have your staff or yourself could have picked out maybe one or two mayors to let them know that you were going to make this uh, big announcement. Theron Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta was very clear that, yes, the governor can do whatever he wants here. And yet she very methodically questioned the reasons for it. I wonder, and you certainly have contacts with her, was her off-camera reaction a little stronger than it was on camera? <laughs> um, no. What you saw from the mayor the day after the announcement and the evening of the announcement was pretty much what she shared with me privately. I do want to say this, that the governor and the mayor both did a really good job the governor was on Fox News, the mayor was on MSNBC and CNN and every national outlet you can name. And one thing that they both did, they both said, hey, we do have a good working relationship, right? We've had a good working relationship and we work well together. The mayor, I think, was a little shocked that the governor did not at least sort of give her a heads up again. He didn't have to do it. But I think what she did in a very concise way is sort of lay out her reasoning of why she thought the decision was not the right decision. It was too soon. And what she did, Dennis, unlike, I think, the governor, is that she really gave some statistics. She made a point that bowling is not an essential service that we've got to do. And so you saw her really go out and, quite frankly, express what a lot of people in Georgia felt. And I think that, you know, she will continue to do that. And at the appropriate time, listen, they're going to come together. I don't think there's any sort of strong tension and animosity there between the governor and the mayor. I can speak to that directly. The challenge is now is she had to sort of do what she thought was right, because even though she can't overturn the order, as she put it, she does have a voice and she definitely wanted to express her opinion about his decision. Brian, the latest COVID relief bill that came through Congress does not include help for state and local governments, and certainly not just Atlanta affected by this, but local governments throughout the state. And there's uncertainty now, via Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, about whether the Senate will consider a next phase at all, which might include help for state and local governments. What is this going to do Again, not just to Atlanta, where Mayor Bottoms recently outlined what the effects of the revenue loss is going to be, but other cities all over the state. I think this is going to be deeper and wider than the serious cutbacks that we had during the 08-09 recession that really led into 2010 and 2011. You know, we were still cutting in state government in 2011 and 2012. People forget that. Now, why is that? It's because government revenues are a lagging indicator. It hits small businesses and anything in the private sector first. But in this case, it's going to hit governments even faster than it normally would in a recession because uh, if you think about it, the last week was April 15th, which is normally a very important day in America where that's the day that our, our taxes are due. And this year they weren't due. And so if you're a small business person or an individual taxpayer, you were able to push your April 15th payment to July 15th. That's going to have an impact immediately on what's coming into the state treasury because if you're not sending it to the IRS, you're not sending it to Georgia Department of Revenue either. So it's going to be a cliff of revenue falling off and it will have immediate consequences. 
And let me tell you this, you know, my wife works for the Department of Labor. And so right now she is obviously super busy. I mean, it's just been all hands on deck and she works around the clock trying to communicate and get information to Georgians filing unemployment claims. And let's remember that in the last month and a half, six weeks, the Department of Labor has processed more unemployment claims as it did in 2009 for the year, for the year during the Great Recession, which was a deep and terrible recession. And in 2009, when all that stuff started, the Department of Labor had 2,000 employees. And today it has 1,000. It was pared back dramatically post-Great Recession as we were cutting government. And we did not ever grow back to the level of employment that we had in 2007. And so you're seeing the Department of Labor do much more work in a short period of time than they did in 2009 with half of the employees that they had back then. That's a repercussion 10 years later of the Great Recession. I think we're going to see similar repercussions on how government services are funded, which ones are available moving forward as a result of this, too. Theron, those government services at the local level include first responders, departments of health, the people that you need the most to respond to the pandemic. Absolutely. And and two quick things on what Brian just said. I do think that the governor also was taking in consideration what Brian just laid out, which is they were trying to figure out the best way to reopen small businesses to generate more state revenue. And I think that message was kind of missed. Secondly, I'm happy that Brian pointed that out about the labor commissioner's office. I worked uh, for the Department of Labor from 2002 to 2004. I remember how the Labor Department had career centers all across the state, and they did have those 2,000 employees. And Brian, to, to really point that out, is really accurate because when the deal administration came in, they did have to make some cuts because of the recession. What happened is, is that a lot of those cuts have not been put back in place. And I do want to commend Karina and Labor Commissioner Mark Butler for all the work that they're doing to get people back to work, but they also need to make sure that they get more funding. With that being said, yes, Dennis, that's why with Mayor Bottoms and what the Cab County CEO Michael Thurman did very early on, just to kind of point out two government entities, the city and the county working together. That's why they proactively went ahead and start paying more to some of our essential frontline workers. But now at a time where you're going to start the reopening process, you got to figure out how do you continue to retain these frontline workers and make sure that they're being compensated appropriately so they can continue to work. Because a lot of these folks who were laid off are probably not coming back or maybe not may not be able to come back. And so there was some steps put in place on the local levels to make sure these folks could pay. I suspect that when we reconvene, it looks like it could possibly now be now in June with the legislature, you're going to see some budget talks about making sure that we have enough funding to expand, but more importantly, retain some of these essential frontline workers on the state level. Yeah, and and let me add here, a few weeks ago, we talked about the death of appropriations chairman, Senator Jack Hill of Reedsville, and we made the point that's going to be very tough to fill those shoes. He has been succeeded by my friend, Senator Blake Tillery from Vidalia, but I just want to ask everybody to say a little prayer for Blake Tillery because he's got a really tough 
impossible job ahead of him. When you're cutting as deeply as they're going to have to cut, there are no easy choices. And I think we all need to keep him in our thoughts and prayers as we advance into June. And the General Assembly has got to come back and pass a budget because a new one must be in effect by July the 1st. Let me pick up on the unemployment situation for a moment. The governor's partial reopening creates a problem for many workers who are currently eligible for unemployment because their jobs were halted by his shelter-in-place order. If their bosses open up now, but they still feel unsafe, they won't be eligible for unemployment benefits if they say, no, I, I really don't feel that I can come in. So, Brian, is it too cynical to say, as some have, that the governor may have had his eye on the state's unemployment compensation fund budget when he made this move? That is way too cynical. And look, if that was the case, you would have seen him pair up with Commissioner Martin Butler to make this announcement. He would have wanted the commissioner to have skin of the game in, in that decision, just like he had the speaker and the lieutenant governor be in the news conference when they announced this relaxing of the restrictions. He wanted to be able to show a broader level of support for this. He wasn't going it alone, that there were people in the General Assembly, the people's elected officials, who wanted to see some change. He wanted to see some reforms put in place to get their, their economy going. This is about letting people go earn a living if they can. And does it create hard decisions? Does it create unfortunate situations where people don't feel safe going to work? Yeah, absolutely. But if we did nothing, we're facing the hard decisions of telling people, you've got to watch your business collapse, what you put your heart and soul into building. And you didn't fail because you had a bad business plan. You didn't fail because you didn't work hard enough or you made bad financial decisions. You're failing because of a pandemic and you were forced to close through no fault of your own. That is how Kemp is approaching this. He has to do something that has a downside for somebody. There are winners and losers in these decisions, no doubt about it. And I don't think the governor's even trying to pretend that's not the case. I think he's been very frank about the fact that people face tough decisions. Theron, you've heard the claims, I'm sure, that one of his motives may have been getting some folks off unemployment benefits because of the budget. Yeah, and, and, and see, that's why I go back to the process. I mean, if this was about stimulating the, the state economy, then let's say that. I would have had Labor Commissioner Mark Butler at the press conference with me or had him roll out, what are these workers to do, Dennis? Which, by the way, many of them are actually making more money now by being on unemployment than they were actually making work in their job. And so if I'm making more money now because of the COVID-19 and the federal government paying me more than they would have paid me had I lost my job, then am I going to really stop my unemployment and then go back to a job and make less money? And if so, if I make that decision, which is my decision, then what are the pros and cons to that decision? And I think therein lies the challenge where there's just so much confusion. I believe that the governor definitely was looking at how state revenue and, and everything were taking a huge hit. We were having to pay so much money out of unemployment insurance, which by the way, that's people's money. If you work, your employer has to pay unemployment insurance that is entitled to you if you get laid off. So let's not act like this was something that, you know, we haven't prepared for. I mean, it's something that people have the, the right to get these unemployment benefits. But if that was the case, then let's just say that. 
and I think that that message, unfortunately, was kind of missing. And the last thing I want to say is this. I want to give the governor the benefit of the doubt. I think the governor does have what he wants to do set in his mind. He's made it clear. I don't think he's going to walk back. I would just really encourage them to consider that they just had some missteps along the way with communications. Let's not forget, we talked about in this podcast, the governor's made some comments that people have said that he's misspoke. He's got to make sure that when everything is completely reopened, that he has clearly communicated to businesses of how we are supposed to operate in this new climate. Let's shift, and unfortunately, it's going to be very quickly, to a couple of non-COVID-19 developments. Theron, the Atlanta Public School System named its sole finalist for the superintendent's position. She is Lisa Herring, a Spelman College graduate who's now the superintendent of the Birmingham, Alabama schools. She's also a native of the Macon area. And I'll say up front here, we're going to be very quick, but you can find out more in her conversations with our own Martha Dalton and Rose Scott, and those are at wabe.org. But Theron, she comes into a job where there's already a strategic plan that's been put in place by the outgoing administration of Dr. Maria Karstarfen, and she comes into a job that has been fraught with political tensions over the years with Atlanta's City Hall. Those are two kind of built-in restrictions, if you will, for her. How does she navigate those? The one thing we also want to add is that current superintendent, Dr. Maria Karstarfen, will remain as superintendent until July 1st. What I want to also do is just really compliment the board that was led by Chairman Jason Estevez and also Vice Chairwoman Ishe Collins. And they took a lot of hits, Dennis. Um, A lot of people sort of criticized the board's decision to begin the process of the next phase. And so I think that they've done a really good job of picking a woman. Dr. Heron, who is from this area, she taught in DeKalb County, and Bib is coming from Birmingham, so she has a good working relationship with the mayor there. By the way, Mayor Wolfen was also on the school board, so he spoke very highly of her. I do know that she has had conversations with key elected officials already in the state, in the city. I know she's talked to the mayor. I know she's talked to the governor. She's making her rounds with different parents and different constituency groups. She's making sure she talks to key business leaders. I know she's talked to former DeKalb County Superintendent Michael Thurman. And so the board had to begin this process to make sure that she gets a proper Atlanta way onboarding. Because on July 1st, one of the things that she's got to be prepared for when she takes the reins is how is she going to deal with the coronavirus. But one of the things that she said, Dennis, as I close, that made me feel very good about where her focus is, is that she wants to make sure that every single APS employee, faculty, administrative, and staff, that they all feel that they're supported through this COVID-19 crisis. And so I think she definitely has her priorities in line. I'm really excited about her uh, starting as superintendent. Brian, one thing that a superintendent in Atlanta, because it's independent of City Hall, has to do is on the one hand, not be seen as an extension of City Hall, but on the other hand, not be seen as in a kind of mutually destructive relationship with City Hall. That's going to be one of the needles that Lisa Herring is going to have to thread here. Yeah, that's a a dynamic we have seen play out in Atlanta between the mayor and the superintendent before. And we've also seen it the other way, where they've worked cooperatively and have made progress. 
the new superintendent is inheriting a really tough situation. Now, granted, it's not different than other superintendents in the state. Everybody's going to be facing a tremendous budget crunch, but there's a learning curve when you come into a new system for any superintendent, and she's going to be entering that learning curve at a time when they're going to be probably cutting budgets significantly and having larger class sizes. All those things are probably going to happen, and it could force some really tough decisions. I mean, one thing that the the last superintendent had to look at was reducing the overload of elementary schools. They had too many for the size of the district. And so she was having to close down elementary schools, which is politically tough. Neighborhoods obviously rise up and fight that. A crisis like this may demand that sort of action going forward just to make ends meet. So I don't envy her, but I don't envy anybody who is writing budgets right now. To say nothing of the question of tax increases, which may be one way of getting out of that. Um, sort of, to- Dennis. I mean, here's the thing. It's like, you know, in 2021, you're going to start seeing the property uh, tax digest go down because uh, this is going to impact property values. And so even if they raise taxes, it may not raise as much revenue as it was before. And plus, if we still have double digit unemployment next year, the idea of raising taxes is going to be very politically tough to pull off because people aren't going to feel like they can afford it. And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal. Democratic strategist Theron Johnson is a public affairs and government consultant and former National Southern Regional Director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Gentlemen, as always, thanks so much. All the best to your families. See you at the tattoo parlor. Stay safe, Atlanta. And you can follow us on Twitter. Brian is at Lord Tinsdale. That's T-I-N-S-D-A-L-E. Theron is at Theron Johnson. And I'm at D-E-N-I-S-O-H-A-Y-E-R. And don't forget, you can catch WABE's newest podcast with up-to-the-minute information on the coronavirus. It's called Did You Wash Your Hands? with Sam Whitehead hosting. And if you like this show, please subscribe. And you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us. That's a great way to make sure other people can find us. We'll be back in your feed and in your head real soon with more nourishing political conversation Be sure to join us and have a great and a safe week. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. From W-A-B-E Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts.
W-A-B-E.